Uh, Lord, it is true that you are the anchor. That we um, come into this place um, with confidence, not because of what we've done, what we bring, but because of who you are and what you have done in the face of your son Jesus. And Lord, my prayer uh, this morning is that never becomes stale to us. That we would um, marinate and so fan into flame our affections for what it is that you've done and the reality that one day we will see you face to face as the mist and the fog fades and we see you, the deity, fully revealed. And so, Lord Jesus, hasten the day when you return. Give us uh, strength to walk in joyful obedience, loving you and loving people until you return. Be with this time. Go, for, go forth and accomplish your purpose. Uh, anoint um, these words, for without you they have no effect. Grateful for the reality that you loved us and have called us your children. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Uh, my name is Jason. Um, I don't always sound like Batman. Um, I'm getting over something. Um, I told the first service that uh, between uh, water breaks and Kleenex breaks and the nap that I'm going to need to take in about 20 minutes, the sermon will be about 60. So um, we did a pretty good job. We got out of here about 65 minutes. So no, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, the, the Lord is good, and <clears throat> my flesh is weak, but he is strong, and so we will trust in that reality more and more. Um, so just bear with me as I have to pause or put my head on the pedestal or whatever is necessary to keep going this morning. Um, welcome. If you're new, uh, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors at Windsor, and we are studying as uh, Jeff uh, um, shared through the book of First John, and we're continuing to do that together this morning. Um, if you haven't been able to listen to the last um, several messages or have missed any messages along the way, I would encourage you to go to our website and uh, pull them up online and listen to them. I know that you will be served by them, um, and um, you will have a better understanding of the flow of thought of this book and our theme of blessed assurance. Just by way of reminder, we've defined that blessed assurance as a joyful confidence that you're headed in the right direction. And we said that there are um, a couple diagnostic tools that we can use by God's grace to know if we're walking in the blessed assurance. And the first one is that we have the right starting point, the right trailhead. The second is that we have full confidence in the source to get you there. You believe the guide is telling you and leading you in the right way. And then the third is that you don't change one and two just because of your circumstances. Now, last week, Pastor Chris opened up the word and he led us through the idea of abiding in eternal life. That our destination, it is a place, but much more than that, it's actually a person. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. And that if you have Jesus, you have the Father. 
If you have the one, then you have the other. And this morning is going to uh, continue to help us more deeply understand the idea of blessed assurance as it's going to hold high the future destination and how it is that we will get there someday. I've entitled, I've titled this message, Seeing Future Promises and Present Realities, and this text is going to bounce our attention back and forth between what is to come and what already is. Some theologians have called this the already and not yet realities of Scripture. So the roadmap for this morning is that we're going to walk through these verses and we're going to see at times the future, real, uh, the future promises that are yours in Christ as a child of God. And then we're going to see at times the present realities that are yours now as a child of God. And then we're going to see how those two things, those two um, truths, those two principles complement each other. And how they aim to grow us in our blessed assurance. And then as time permits, uh, hopefully apply that to our lives. So that's the intent, Lord willing, He'll allow us to do that. If you haven't, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 John. It's towards the end of the, end of the Bible. And uh, we're going to start in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 28. going to read a couple verses. We're going to pause and we'll reflect on them. Starting in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that anyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That's a powerful reality that Jesus is coming back. How often do you think about that? I think the idea of Jesus' second coming is referenced or referred to or explained and expounded upon 318 times in the 260 chapters that are found in the New Testament. So one might say it's a relatively big deal for the New Testament authors to talk about the return of Jesus. Admittingly, I think I gloss over it quickly when I read through the text at times. Matthew chapter 25 gives us a reality, paints us a picture of that truth. Starting in verse 31, it tells us what will happen. It says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's a big throne. Daniel chapter 7 tells us that he is the ancient of days and that he will come down from the clouds and that all power and authority will be given to him. That his rule and his kingdom are an everlasting rule and kingdom. 
where the Alpha and the Omega, the Holy, the Righteous One, will appear and he will gather all people to himself. And he will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14. That will be a monumental moment. And as I think about that moment, I think about that reality, there's really only one question that I think about initially in my gut, and it is, how will I experience anything but shame in that moment? Where all of who I am, all of who Jason is, is on display before all of you and the holy of holies sitting upon his holy throne. Let me illustrate. Some years ago, uh, my wife Emily and I were attending a church in Fort Collins, and the church was doing a celebratory dinner for all the people, uh, the leaders in the church, and um, they invited us to come, and so not thinking much about it, we walked into the church, I remember it, um, we like opened up the door, and um, inside it was decorated really, really nice, there's candles, I think it was even around Christmas time, and so it was very fancy, there was fancy food, all the pastors were there, all the pastors' wives were there, there were a lot of um, other leaders within the church, they're all dressed up in really nice, fancy suits, and ties and dresses and there I am like 20 years of age in a hoodie blue jeans and white tennis shoes it was a Carhartt hoodie so you know I at least I had that going for me that's shame when you don't belong somewhere and uh, and you and everybody else knows it Maybe a different um, illustration is the time where we've been at Chick-fil-A as parents. And um, our wonderful children are not being so wonderful at the time. And I've got a six-year-old who's fighting me on some levels, and then I've got two uh, three-year-olds who are fighting me on other levels. And Emily and I, it's all that we can do to get them from Chick-fil-A back into the car so we can close that nonsense up. And my three-year-olds are throwing themselves on the, the, the asphalt, and all the Christian families are looking at you, right? It's like, that's shame. To be ill-prepared and everyone knows it. Shame is what Adam and Eve felt after they had sinned. It's what caused them to hide from God's presence in the garden. And I would argue that shame is the only thing that anyone would ever have if God didn't go looking for Adam and Eve. If God didn't give the promise to crush the head of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. If God didn't ultimately send the serpent crusher. But God did do those things. 
How could anyone have confidence in that moment and not shame when the God of all creation sits upon his glorious white throne when he appears? How could anyone have that future promise? You must first have Jesus. This future promise of confidence is founded actually in the present reality for those who are abiding in him. Individuals who have bent their knee to Jesus, who have acknowledged their sin, that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are the only way, the only true starting point to be confident before the Lord of hosts when he comes. So it begs a question. How do you know if you're going to have confidence when he appears? How do you know if that is a future promise for you? Verse 29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that anyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is the beauty of God's kindness towards us, if you think about it, that he doesn't only give us some amazing future promises, although he does do that, but he also gives us present realities to fuel our assurance of things to come. So how can you know if you have confidence when he appears? Abide in him today. Agree today that he is the righteous one. Take great encouragement, child of God, in the righteousness in your life today. That is a sign of you being born of him and abiding. Celebrate, actually, the trajectory of righteous living in your life. The life of your spouse, your friends, your kids, your coworkers. Because if you see righteousness, it is not from this world. It's not a fruit produced by our flesh, actually. Not something that can be conjured up <clears throat> uh, because we desire to be righteous, but instead it's produced by the Spirit. The spirit that we have been given as a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that. Let's continue to read on in verses 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God and so we are. Underline that if you can. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, you, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See Behold what kind of love the Father has given us. There's several profound realities that are spoken about here in these verses. The first reality is understanding what kind of love the Father has given to us. We know from other places in Scripture that this love is ultimately expressed in the face of Jesus. 1 John 4, 9 says, In this the love of God has been made manifest among us 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. We see that this love expressed itself in a specific way for a specific purpose. It's not a general kind of love. It's not even a love that you get to define what it is and isn't. It's not an aimless kind of love. It's a love that acted on our behalf to bring us back into relationship with our creator and king. And just as we saw last week that you can't have Jesus without having the Father, one would argue that you can't have God's love without having Jesus. Jesus is the definer of God's love. We also see that because of this love given to us from the Father that we should and therefore are called children of God. The ESV uses the word called. Other translations use the word named. Uh, Regardless, uh, because of this love, we are called or you are named children of God. Consider that with me for a moment. Don't let, it, um, don't let us gloss over this reality that the God of the universe, right, the creator and the sustainer of all things, the only one actually capable of declaring you his child, did. He named you his. Maybe more accurately stated, he has renamed you his. He's given you a new name a new title. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says that we were once called children of wrath. But because of this love, because of Jesus, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. See, this act of naming fits in line with God's redemptive pursuit as the old passes away and the new comes. Consider for a moment uh, all the biblical stories where God has given individuals a new name. Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel, Saul to Paul and others, all are upheld and sustained by God's word that he declares who they are. In similar manner, for those who believe Jesus is the Christ, God has called and named you his child. It's a present reality for you today. We also see in this verse that our salvation is caused by our adoption as God's children, and that our adoption is only because of God's love. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is why we have adoption and salvation, because God chose to love us. John Calvin put it this way, since the apostle teaches that this flows, that is God's love, or excuse me, salvation flows from the mere love of God alone, there's nothing left to our worthiness or to the merits of 
works. It's simply because God loved us. This is the present reality for us, his children, that the Father gave us his love, which was Christ, and through that came our adoption as his children. What follows here in verse 1, part B, it says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I take this to be a comfort for us, being children in this world living imperfectly, but desiring to walk in the light as, the, as our Father is in the light, doing that and having the world not agree with it. It echoes Jesus' words in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 27. In summation, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 2 and 3, beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The writer pushes our attention back out to a future promise of becoming like Jesus. I think it's a little bit of an understatement to say that that's a difficult concept to understand, becoming like Jesus. Because there are some real life realities that are ours because of what Jesus has done. The Father sees us as righteous. For as Colossians tells us that he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its illegal demands. So there is a sense right now, Christian, child of God, that we truly are purified because of Jesus' work on the cross. But as these verses say, there must be something else that awaits you and I. Philippians chapter 3 verse 21 tells us that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now nowhere in scripture does it say that we will be equal to Christ. However, he, we will share in his likeness and some of his characteristics like his immortality and his righteousness, to name a few. The biblical picture that we're left with in Revelations 22, verses 3 and 4, is God and the Lamb are upon the throne and his servants are worshiping him on that day. And it says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. I think it's important to note that the cause for this transformation that will occur for all Christians is actually stated in these verses. How shall we be like him? Because we will see him as he is. There's something profound about being in the presence of the Almighty and the transformational power that occurs when the fullness of the deity is revealed fully. 
It's the picture that Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. See, right now we see the Christ dimly. We look back on history and we see it, but it is dim. Just as the Old Testament saints looked forward dimly to Christ, we look back upon him both dimly. That is a present reality. And our future promise that you and I have is that one day you shall see fully because you see face to face. What you know now in part is love, his mercy, his kindness, his grace, his forgiveness, his holiness, our sin, his power will one day be fully known. One day, you will know fully and be known fully by the one that gifted, loved, that purchased salvation, that adopted you, that named you his child, who will one day appear and make all things new. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip a couple more pages to Revelations chapter 21. This is the reality and the future promise that awaits us. Starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And he and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. See the future promise we have in Christ. Verse 3 and First John says, and anyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, I think this could be either seen as either a future promise or a present reality or maybe both. The idea of hoping in him happens today. It's something that we do in the present, but it's really the expectation and the desire for something to happen in the future and so it's interesting to think about, is this purity that he speaks of a present thing or a future promise? 
Is he saying that if we hope in him, we will purify ourselves in the here and now? Or is he speaking of the time when we see him face to face? Spoiler alert, I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit of that already but not yet realities that we talked about earlier. So we've seen some future promises that God one day will appear and that when he appears for those who have trusted in him that we can boldly approach the throne of grace unashamed. We've seen the present reality of righteousness in our lives being produced by the Spirit of God. We've seen the present reality of being a child of God, that we have been named and called His. We've seen the future promise of seeing Him face to face and being transformed into His image, and the future promise and the present reality of Him purifying us as we hope in Him. So one question remains, what does all that have to do with blessed assurance? These truths that we've looked at, the truths in 1 John that we have been working through, all of them bolster our confidence in a world marked by sin and brokenness. I would argue that not a single day ought to go by, does go by, without our need to be reminded of these truths. Regardless, actually, where you are this morning, whether you are in a good place or a bad place, whether you're in the pit of despair at the end of yourself, needing hope in a hopeless circumstance, it's Christ's hope that breathes sweet rays of life to you. Maybe you're at your wit's end with your own sin. When all you feel or experience is your shame. It's Christ's truth that you are a child of God where you can, because of Jesus, approach in confidence, where you are no longer naked but clothed because of Jesus' righteousness. I think the reality of life is that we can too easily be fooled, that these truths are things we master as Christians in the Christian faith, and then we move on to other things. Instead, the truths founded in the gospel, who God is, who we are without him, what Christ did, and now what we have access to because of what Christ has done, and now who we are because of what Christ has done is something that we must continue to fight to foster in our lives. It's not something that we master and then move on from.
maybe a diagnostic question then is how are you doing with fostering affection for the gospel, for this assurance that we are finding in these pages? Let me share how I feel like I've been doing with it lately. Most of my message prep, <clears throat> whether it's this message or with others, I struggle to develop the application of the text, the so what factor. And this message was really no different. I worked through what I felt like the text is saying, trying to figure out how to communicate that to all of you in a cohesive way that's not confusing. The jury's still out on that, by the way. <clears throat> all the while struggling to answer what I would argue is the most important question, which is God how do you want to use this in me? How do you want to use this in our church, your church? And sometime last night, I'm sitting at our dining room table, smacking my head lightly against my table as I wrestle through that question, God, what it is that you have here for me? And God, in his kindness, brings this question to mind. How precious do I consider the assurances I find in these pages? Theologically, I know them. I understand them. One could argue I could preach on them. I believe them. But how dear are they to me? And as I sat there with my laptop up and my Bible open, and earbuds in my ears to try to drown out the three noisemakers we have in our home. Two things happened. The first one is that conviction came over me. That although I know and I understand and I theologically agree I can and have been in a season where that is dull to me. Where I have not considered it as precious assurance to me. And then... In God's kindness, conviction gave way to nearness, where I felt and understood 
that the Lord called me his beloved child. And teary-eyed, I sat in my dining room in awe of the reality that the God of the universe uh, loves me and he calls me his. I don't know where um, all of you are at this morning. I don't have that privilege, unfortunately, to know everyone's circumstance and where you are and what you need this morning. Whether you need to be reminded of these uh, truths of assurance, whether you need to consider them as precious I just know that this life is hard. And I know some of you are going through really challenging things. And my prayer for You, all of you, and I know the prayer for all of you on behalf of our pastoral team is that we would see the future promises that are ours in Christ and that we would would let the present realities that we have in Christ, that they would fan into flame our affections and our confidence for our King. and our final destination when he comes. And for all the promises that he is going to follow through on. Amen? Amen. Let's pray as the band comes up and closes us in song.